An Asiana Airlines 777 crashes on a runway in San Francisco. How did the crew cause this plane to cartwheel on the runway? And a quick shout out before we start the episode. As of the recording date, June 7th, this was the 25th anniversary of the 777's entry into service. Happy birthday, 777. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. I'm Christy. And I'm Jay. This is my little brother. And the first family member to guest star on this podcast. Yep, yep. So, guys, we want to apologize. Uh, We had some technical difficulties, and we lost everything. (laughs) Literally anything we had on the hard drive we were using, which we have been doing since we got this new computer, is gone. Which means about five episodes and multiple other other things that go on Patreon and things like that. Blooper reels are gone, Miranda sods. So that's why we didn't post last week. And this was actually not the first time that I guest star on this podcast. And it was actually one of their episodes in which I did guest star, which was the first time that I did that, but they ended up losing that. So this is going to be my second time here. But first time that you guys get to hear him. Yep. So I'm yeah. sorry. <laughs> and we're doing a totally different one than he got to hear before. Yeah. So this will all be fun. We are changing our schedule a little bit, and we apologize for the recommendation that got skipped. We eventually. We will eventually when we can post salvage this. it. We will post it. We We're promise. sorry. It just. I mean, that episode we already had to re-record it once. And let me tell you, small rant, but <laughs> freaking the amount of money it costs to get data salvaged is insane. So that's not going to happen for a little while. Because... They quoted us $2,000. $2,000. To get about 10 gigabytes of worth data. Of actual of, data we need. Yeah. But, like, with all things considered and how the circumstances are with you guys, I'd say you guys are handed quite well. I mean... Thank you. This is why we record in advance. You also didn't see my panic attack, so... <laughs> but it'll be okay. So thank you for being forgiving. We are sorry. We... It ended up being pretty good, because... The day we usually would have posted ended up being a blackout day anyway because of the riots and stuff here in the United States. So right, it right. ended up we probably wouldn't have posted anyway, but hard to say, but we don't know because we, we didn't have an episode. So <laughs> we don't have an episode to post. But thank you, especially to Mike, who uh, he's one of our patrons. And he was like, is everything OK? And I was like, <laughs> it's fine. Don't worry about okay. it. Okay. <laughs> I just died. Oh, Mike. Everything I'll just consider it. fell apart briefly. Yeah. But thank you, and uh, thank you for continuing to listen. With that in mind, what are we covering today, Nick? We are covering Asiana Flight 214. This one was relatively recent, and a lot of people probably remember this because it was pretty dramatic. I mean, I vaguely remember this, but I don't really know much about this flight, so it's kind of nice not knowing much about this and for you guys to explain this to me, so... Yep, this ought to be fun. So this happened on July the 6th of 2013. So, yep, relatively recent. Almost exactly seven years ago. Almost exactly seven years ago. This was a 777-200ER, extended range. Uh, This is one of the only times we will ever get to cover a 777, because they really don't crash very often. (laughs) They have a very good safety record. Though they have gone missing and have been shot down. So. Yes, unfortunately. And this isn't the only accident of the 777, but 
That said, they are very, very, very rare. This 777 had the tail number of Hotel Lima 7742. So is Hotel Lima, or HL, is that, that Asian? Is, that is Korean. Korean. So it's Korean. This, uh, is an, this is a South Korean airline. So the only reason I ask that is for those of you who are patrons, which currently only two of you can listen to my Miranda episode, is I covered Korean Air 801, and they had a Hotel Lima tail number two. That's why I was asking. Yeah. And that episode is coming out this month. Stay tuned. So this flight was from Incheon to San Francisco. It was a standard schedule overnight flight with an estimated flying time of 10 hours and 24 minutes. Now we're going to do something weird for this flight. The pilot flying, or the left seat pilot, who was performing the captain duties, was 45-year-old Lee Kang Cook. He was a pilot in training on the 777 for a captain's role. What was he transitioning from? He was transitioning from an Airbus A320. He had been captain on an A320 for a long time. He had 9,793 hours total, so pretty experienced, of which only 43 hours were on the 777 in just nine flights up to this point. And the pilot not flying, or pilot monitoring, in the right seat performing co-pilot functions was Lee Jung Min. He was 49 years old. He had an impressive 12,387 hours total, of which 3,220 hours were on the 777. He was a check pilot, or instructor, and he was actually the pilot in command for this flight. So, this is a, a whole lot of confusion. But basically, the pilot in the right seat was the instructor. He is officially the pilot in command, since the pilot in the left seat isn't signed off to be a captain on the 777 yet. Yet, he was having to perform captain duties because he was training to be a captain on the 777. So, while the, the instructor in the right seat was technically not performing the captain's duties, he was responsible for anything that happened on that flight as a captain, as the pilot in command. So any situation they were in was technically his responsibility. Keep that in mind during my analysis, because I'm going to make it sound like that's not the case, but that is definitely the case. And this is this just makes things very confusing, but we're going to use the terms, instead of captain and first officer, we're going to use the terms pilot flying, for the left seat, the pilot in training. And the pilot monitoring. And the pilot monitoring, or the instructor pilot in the right seat. There was a second relief crew on board as well that was made up of a captain and a first officer. So between the four crew members, there were three captains and one first officer, officially. And they were only used for, that relief crew was only used for a portion of the cruise flight. The flight departed with the trainee and the instructor pilots, or the primary flight crew. They flew for four hours and 15 minutes of the, of the beginning of the flight. And then the relief crew took the control of the airplane for the next 5 hours and 15 minutes. Just curious, how much does it suck to get into a cockpit seat halfway through a flight? Because it's tight. It is, but it's actually not bad. Like in the 777, it wouldn't be terrible because they can actually move the, the seat pretty far. So they, they slide back and then they slide to the side so that you can swing your legs out and get out. So it's well, that's not, nice. It's not totally terrible. Because when I got when I got into the spruce goose, that like that was tight for me, and oh, I'm yeah. I'm not big. And to be fair, most cockpits are not very big. Like the 737, you basically have to climb over the seat to get in. Even though they slide to the side, you still basically have to put your feet over the controls into the the seat. Sounds great. Yeah, I bet someone that's as big as I am, and I'm six one, that'd be pretty tight for me. It can be. So, yeah, this was. I mean, this wasn't terrible. During that time, the crews were allowed to rest in the cabin the passenger cabin. At 9.55 a.m. Pacific time, the crew transfer occurred, 
switching the switching over to the accident crew from the relief crew. So back to the primary crew. About six minutes later, the crew discussed their expectations for a visual approach into San Francisco. At 10.42 a.m. and 28 seconds, after receiving the ATIS information, Juliet, which informed the crew that the visual approaches were in use for runway 28 left and 28 right at San Francisco, and that the glide slope was not operating for either runway. Does that sound really familiar? That sounds so familiar. That was part of your Miranda side. The pilot flying further stated that he planned to use the localizer for maintaining the lateral path, and once they had captured the localizer, then they would use the Automatic Flight Control System, or AFCS, for vertical control of the airplane, which uses the auto throttle and the vertical speed through the Flight Director System to maintain a stabilized vertical approach path. So, in other words, the throttle's automatically adjusting for power, and the vertical speed being adjusted, though manually, helps the airplane maintain a very stabilized approach. They had an MDA, or minimum descent altitude, of 460 feet MSL, and a go-around altitude of 3,000 feet for their missed approach. This was all discussed at that time. At 10.47 a.m. and 28 seconds, the pilot flying called for the descent checklist. The pilot monitoring acknowledged the call-out and began to run the checklist. At 10.47 and 54 seconds, they completed that checklist, so only about 30 seconds later. At 11.23 a.m. and 33 seconds, the first officer, the one from the relief crew, returned to the cockpit and occupied the jump seat and acted as an observer, which he will be referred to from now on, during the approach and the landing. So in other words, he was just sitting at the back of the cockpit observing everything. The flight was cleared to descend to lower altitudes and was vectored for a straight-in approach for 28 left by air traffic control. At 11.21 and 49 seconds, air traffic control asked if the flight crew had the airport in sight, to which the pilot monitoring reported back, OK, runway in sight. The controller then cleared them for a visual approach for 28 left. At that time, the aircraft was at 6,300 feet mean sea level, so 6,300 feet uh, indicated on their attitude indicator. On their barometric altimeter. Yep. And the airplane speed was 211 knots, with flaps and landing gear up. At 11.22 and 7 seconds, the pilot flying stated, I am intercepting localizer. And the pilot monitoring, st- and the pilot monitoring stated, yes. Yeah. What? <laughs> yep. Shouldn't they say intercepting localizer? At 11.22 and 11 seconds, the pilot monitoring stated, localizer armed. The pilot flying followed with, check cleared visual approach. At 11.22 and 46 seconds, the pilot flying stated, next 3100, then cleared visual approach, to which the pilot monitoring replied, check. At 11.22 and 54 seconds, so all of this is within a minute, the pilot monitoring stated, let's descend slowly to 1,800 feet, and it's visual. The pilot flying replied, yes, yes, sir, I will set to 1,800. At 11.23 and 5 seconds, the the pilot monitoring stated, Localizer com- capture. The pilot flying replied, check. Flaps one, sir. And the pilot monitoring stated, speed check. Flaps one, set. So they set one one notch of flaps at that point. As they were capturing the localizer for their straight in, that's what they were using for their their horizontal, their lateral. And what is that flap setting at the first detent? It is simply the slats. The slats extend. At that time, the airplane was descending through 4,900 feet, and the airspeed was 214 knots. So the airspeed had actually gone up three knots. At 11.23 and 16 seconds, the pilot flying set the autopilot speed to 192 knots. At 11.23 and 17 seconds, so a second later, 
the flight was at 215 knots, descending to descending at 900 feet per minute. When the controller instructed the flight to slow to 180 knots and remain there until five nautical miles out, the pilot monitoring acknowledged the instructions from air traffic control. At 11:23 and 31 seconds, so about 15 seconds later, the pilot flying stated speed 180, and the pilot monitoring replied check. Immediately followed by the pilot flying saying flaps five. This was not acknowledged. About 10 seconds later, the pilot flying called for flaps five, sir, again. And the pilot monitoring applied speed check, then flaps five. By 11.23 and 50 seconds, the airplane's descent rate had reduced to about 300 feet per minute, so next to nothing. Three seconds later, the pilot flying stated, yeah, I'm descending now. To which the pilot monitoring stated, yeah. So confusing. Yeah, that's not proper. No. Five seconds later, the the pilot monitoring called vertical speed, and the pilot flying replied, 1,000. And the pilot monitoring replied, check. So they changed their vertical speed from 300 feet per minute to 1,000 feet per minute down. There was no communication between the pilots for the following 31 seconds. At 11.24 and 32 seconds, the plane was about 9.5 nautical miles from landing, descending through 3,900 feet at 185 knots, and a descent rate of 1,000 feet per minute. So, to be honest, relatively stabilized. The pilot observing comment, The pilot observing commented at this point, which is that first officer in the back of the cockpit, to 1805 miles. The pilot monitoring replied, ah, 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 180. And the observer replied, 1805 miles. The wait, pilot, wait, he shouldn't even be doing anything, should right, he? Right. The pilot flying then replied, huh? Yeah, I would be huh, too. So, <laughs> what? So, so the observer replied again, the speed to maintain given by the approach controller was 180, not 185. The pilot flying then stated, okay, 1805 miles followed by another 12 seconds of silence. At 11.24 and 51 seconds, the airplane was 8.5 nautical miles out, descending through 3,500 feet at an airspeed of 188 knots, so it had gone up. The pilot flying called for the landing gear to be extended, and the pilot monitoring did so. The pilot monitoring immediately followed with, This seems a little high. The pilot flying replied, Yeah. And the pilot monitoring replied, Again. This should be a bit high. And the pilot flying stated, Do you mean it's too high? Followed by, I will descend more. The vertical speed was then changed to 1,500 foot per minute descent. What? <laughs> yeah. Yes. So they were high on their approach, and the, basically the, the pilot monitoring was calling out that, saying, this is high. We're too high. We need to descend more. And, and then... But the, the back and forth was so confusing. Yeah. Like, the clarification was so confusing. Yeah, this just blows my mind. So... I'll get into it more, too. Yes. Another, tw- another 21 seconds of silence followed. At 11.25 and 31 seconds, the pilot monitoring stated 1,000, and the vertical speed changed to 1,000 foot per minute. At this point, back from 1,500. They were 6.3 nautical miles from the runway, descending through 2,600 feet at an airspeed of 178 knots. So finally, they'd gotten down below their 180. At 11.25 and 36 seconds, the approach controller instructed the flight to contact the tower controller at San Francisco and the... The pilot monitoring acknowledged this. Seconds later, the pilot flying stated that the missed approach altitude was 3,000 feet, as agreed earlier, and that was entered into the autopilot just in case they had to go around. At 11.25 and 55 seconds, as the airplane reached about 5 nautical miles out, the airplane was about 400 feet above the desired glide path of 3 degrees at 174 knots with a descent rate of 1,000 foot per minute. San Francisco is known for these steep and fast approaches anyways, compared to most airports, so this wasn't 
totally unheard of, but they were above their their path and descending very quickly. I just want to point out that in the Air Disasters episode, they made it sound like that's what they were supposed to be doing was a quote-unquote slam-dunk approach, and that was not That was not required. actually really required or the case here. At 11.25 and 56 seconds, the pilot monitoring radioed the tower, stating the flight's position, but did not immediately get a response from air traffic control. Five seconds later, the pilot flying requested flaps 20, to which the, the pilot monitoring replied, flaps 5, uh, and then flaps 20, and he moved the flap lever to the 20 detent. So obviously there was some kind of confusion there. Obviously. That's the instructor that had that confusion, by the way. At 11.26 and 10 seconds, the autopilot's speed was changed to 152 knots, and two seconds later, the pilot flying called out flaps 30, and the pilot monitoring replied, speed check, flaps 30. This was done at 174 knots, which is above the 170 knot speed limit of the flaps 30 setting. So in other words, the flaps all have a speed setting, like you can't you can't use them at or above a certain speed, and they were using them that flaps 30 starting four knots too high above their, the speed limit for flaps 30. That would be 30 degrees, by the way. At this time, the plane was three and a half nautical miles from the runway, descending through 1,500 feet at 169 knots, and a descent rate of 1,000 feet per minute. At 11.26 and 32 seconds, the pilot monitoring stated, flight director, and the pilot flying replied, check. At 11.26 and 36 seconds, the pilot monitoring, so about four seconds later, the pilot monitoring stated speed, and the pilot flying replied, target speed 137, which was then set in the autopilot. So that was their target approach speed, how slow they were, they wanted to make their final approach. The airplane was 2.9 nautical miles out and 165 knots, descending through 1,300 feet. This would have been significantly above the glide slope, which would have been visually indicated by the PAPI, or Precision Approach Path Indicator lights, beside the runway, which would have been in sight. They were indicating four white at the time. So there are four lights, and they will either indicate white or red. If you have four white, you're too high. Three white, you're too high. Two white and two red, then you are perfect. You're right on your glide slope. Three red, then you're too low. Four red, and you're dead. That's the saying. Four red, you're too low. Way too low. So at this point, they were way too high. They were saying four white. At 11.26 and 40 seconds, the pilot flying called out, Flight Director off. And the pilot monitoring replied, okay. At 11.26 and 44 seconds, the pilot monitoring stated, it's high. And through the next eight seconds, the airplane's descent rate increased from 1,000 foot per minute to 1,500 foot per minute to compensate for this very high approach they were doing. At 11.26 and 52 seconds, the pilot monitoring stated 1,000. Pilot flying replied, check. At 11.26 and 54 seconds, they were 2.1 nautical miles out, descending through 1,000 feet at 151 knots, descending at 1,500 feet per minute. Isn't that a little bit fast now? They are descending very quickly now, for being only 1,000 above. Yeah. As it passed through 1,000 feet, they were 243 feet above the glide path, so they were still high, which would have shown uh, four white lights still. Five seconds later, the observer stated, Sink rate, sir. The observer, that first officer in the back, again, making an observation, stated, Sink rate, sir. So in other words, he noticed they were descending very, very quickly. And the pilot flying replied, Yes, sir. At 11.27, the pilot monitoring radioed the tower that they were on short final. Five seconds later, the observer again stated, Sink rate, at which point the airplane momentarily reached an 1,800 foot per minute descent rate, which is extreme. 
But then it began to decrease, and the pitch attitude began, began to increase, so the nose began to pull up. A second later, the pilot monitoring stated, Cleared to land? Question mark. About a second later, one of the flight crew members stated, Sink rate. Simultaneously, the tower cleared the flight to land on 2-8 left. So a third call for sink rate, while the tower was clearing them to land. At 11.27 and 11 seconds, the pilot monitoring radioed an acknowledgement of the landing clearance. At the same time, one of the flight crew members said something unintelligible, to which the pilot monitoring responded, okay. At 11.27, 14 seconds, so three seconds later, they were 1.3 nautical miles from the runway, descending through 500 feet, at 137 knots, so their target approach speed, for landing. 1,200 foot per minute descent rate at that time. They were 500 feet above, mind you, so that is very fast for only 500 above. But they were still above the glide path. At that moment, an electronic voice stated 500, which is normal. It's their, their call-outs for landing. And about a second later, the pilot flying called for the landing checklist, which is very late. They are less than two nautical miles from the runway. Just over a second later, an electronic voice said minimums, minimums, which is where you make your decision if you're going to land or go around. And another second later, the pilot monitoring stated, Landing checklist complete. Cleared to land. So, the landing checklist was basically completed within two seconds? Yeah, no. Two seconds later, the pilot monitoring stated, On glide path, sir. There were two white, two red. So they were actually on the correct glide slope now. At this point, the plane was descending through 400 feet at 134 knots, so now a little slow, at 1,100 feet per minute descent rate. So they were still descending way too quickly. They should have been descending at 700 feet per minute to maintain their glide path. There was no communication in the cockpit for the next 11 seconds. At 11.27 and 23 seconds, the airspeed dipped below 132 knots, which was their minimum possible speed for this approach. It was about one nautical mile from the runway at 331 feet, and they were now below the glide path, so now they were also too low. The airplane then pitched up 2 degrees and remained there for 3 seconds, so from 2 degrees to 4 degrees nose high and remained there for three seconds. At 11.27 and 31 seconds, the airplane was 0.7 nautical miles from the runway, 219 feet high, and 122 knots, so now very slow, with a 900 foot per minute descent rate, and they were seeing four red at the Pappy lights, so they were way too low. Uh-oh. Yep. Such a switch. Yep. Over the next five seconds, the pitch increased to seven degrees, so it went up another three degrees, and it remained there for three seconds before continuing to increase... At 11.27 and 32 seconds, an electronic voice called out 200, so 200 feet above the ground, to which the pilot monitoring stated, it's low. Pilot flying stated, yeah. At 11.27 and 39 seconds, a quadruple chime master caution alert sounded. They were less than half a nautical mile from the runway at 124 feet high, 114 knots, so now extremely slow, doing 600 foot per minute descent. Followed by another voice stating 100, so 100 feet above. At which point the pilot monitoring said, Speed! Both throttle levers advanced by the pilot monitoring. The stick shaker then activated as the airplane reached 103 knots. So it's amazing that airplane was still airborne, to be honest. At .35 nautical miles out from the runway, they were 39 feet high, doing a 700 foot per minute descent. Engine speeds were at 50%, pitch was 12 degrees nose high, and the speed began to increase, at which point the pilot monitoring called for a go-around. Way too late. Too late. Two seconds later, the stick shaker stopped at 105 knots, miraculously, 
and a second and a half later, the airplane had an, an initial impact with the seawall as the engines were increased through 92% at 106 knots. So at this point, they're starting to gain speed, but the landing gear actually impacted the seawall at the end of the runway. The airplane broke apart, the tail separated, and the plane came to rest on its belly to the left of the runway in the dirt, with both wings intact, and a post-crash fire occurred. From this accident, there were three fatalities. Um, I just want to mention that this flight did have a bunch of teenage, mostly girls on board, I think. Yeah, they were all going to some summer camps in, in the, United, the United, States. United States. They were all from Korea. And so all three fatalities were three teenagers. Wasn't one of them... One of the girls that was ejected out the back? They were all three ejected out the back of the airplane, Because they were wearing their seatbelts? Two were ejected out the back. Okay, two were ejected out the back. What about the other one? We'll get into it. Yeah. Okay. We'll get into that in just a moment. As for serious injuries, one flight crew was seriously injured. Eight cabin crew were seriously injured. Forty passengers were seriously injured for a total of 49. Minor injuries, there were two flight crews minorly injured. Two cabin crew minorly injured and 134 passengers were minorly injured. As for the none category, one flight crew member was not injured at all, two cabin crew members were not injured at all, 114 passengers were not injured at all for a total of 117, making up the total of 307 people that were on board. So only three fatalities. And we're all at the back. And we have a map on our website that shows where in the plane each of these injuries occurred. So all three fatalities were in the back of the plane. And I think several of the cabin crew in the back were also ejected. Yes, several of the cabin crew from the rear galley area were ejected. But they survived. It sheared, but they survived. They were some of the seriously injured, though. They were all seriously injured in the back. Yep. For other damage, the Pappy lights and and the runway were both damaged. The airplane's main landing gear and the underside of the aft fuselage struck the seawall. The main landing gear was the first part of the airplane to hit the seawall and separated cleanly as it was designed to do, believe it or not. The tail separated at the aft bulkhead, so the the, the bulkhead is literally what keeps pressure in the airplane when you're at altitude. So it's a big dome-shaped wall at the rear end of the airplane. We talked about it in the... Afghanistan crash. Yes. And this was, it's behind the rear galley. You can't see it with your own eyes. Usually it's behind a wall. But in any case, it is a like a, a rounded wall that is meant to keep pressure in the airplane. That The uh, tail broke off at that point. There were ground scars that stretched from the seawall to the wreckage area on the ground. Left and The left and right engines separated cleanly, as they were designed to do again. Pretty amazing. The left engine came to rest 600 feet further than the fuselage, so the, the left engine actually traveled 600 feet even further than the fuselage managed to. Which makes sense, because it was running at almost full capacity. I mean, yes, and it also ended up on the right side of the runway, as opposed to the rest of the wreckage which ended up on the left. And mind you, it is the left engine. So the left engine managed to somehow end up on the other side of the runway. We'll get into how that might have happened in a minute. As for the f- three fatal passengers... The passenger in 41B was a 16-year-old female. She was found on the right side of the runway, about midway between the seawall and the main wreckage area. An autopsy found that the cause of death to be multiple blunt force injuries and was ruled accidental. There were skull fractures, extensive contusions, and abrasions to the torso and extremities. The passenger in 41E was a 16-year-old female, found 30 feet in front of the left wing, 
50 feet from the left side of the fuselage. Cause of death was multiple blunt force injuries, ruled accidental. There was moderate dirt and plant material in the outside and inside of the clothing. Skull fractures, severed aorta, fractured pelvis, extensive contusions and abrasions in the extremities and anterior torso, as well as open fractures of the right humerus and left wrist and closed fractures of the left humerus and left femur. The passenger in 42A was a 15-year-old female. She was taken to the hospital and she died six days later. Cause of death was multiple organ dysfunctions due to multiple traumatic injuries, and the manner of death was ruled accidental. It included a skull fracture, multiple traumatic brain injuries, and cervical spinal failure, and a fractured rib, or fractured ribs. So all three of them had very blunt force trauma, which, needless to say, having been thrown from an airplane... Well, the 15-year-old was not, which we'll right. get into later. Right. Uh, only two slides deployed properly from this airplane. The rest did not inflate, except for one that inflated inside the cabin. Oh, no. Pinning a flight attendant under it until it was punctured with a cabin axe by another crew member. Oh, and they, I remember ooh, that. And they both managed to escape. Yikes. It's a bad time. Yeah. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. And we're back. Did you enjoy that ad? Must have been great. That may or may not be there. That may the or may not be there right now. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. This investigation was performed by the National Transportation Safety Board, or NTSB, as expected, and they had a huge task on their hands. This was the first fatal accident of the Boeing Triple Seven, and it had so many different facets to conquer and figure out. The team was on the ground, ready to go the morning after the crash. Both black boxes were recovered and sent off for data recovery, so we'll get back to those later in the investigation. Let's start with some wreckage. Off the bat, just looking at the engines, the investigators knew both were working during the accident as they both had high-speed impact damage on the fan blades. Pretty indicative, they were spinning. But what they could not immediately understand were the media and passenger reports that the plane spun, that it, in fact, cartwheeled. It did a cartwheel. Emily will recall me mentioning a cartwheel in reference to a crash. It's that episode. Investigators thought there was absolutely no way this happened based on the fact that much of the plane, namely the wings, were still intact. The last notable time that a plane cartwheeled ended devastatingly in pieces, and that was United Airlines Flight 232, which was our pilot episode, if you want to refer back to that. Yeah, I totally remember that one. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't until investigators found weird scrape marks on the runway, coupled with a video, sealed the deal. Quote, Video from airport surveillance cameras showed that following the initial impact, the tail of the airplane separated, the airplane slid along the runway, and the rear of the fuselage lifted up, tilting the airplane into about a 30 degrees nose-down angle. The airplane pivoted counterclockwise about 330 degrees before impacting a second time and coming to rest off the left side of the runway, about 2,400 feet from the initial seawall impact point." End quote. We have two different videos of it up on our website that shows exactly what happened if that lovely description didn't do it for you. the There's one that you can definitely see the cartwheel. The second one, 
will be as a link on it, but will not be, you can't like just play it from the website. Yeah, but they're both surveillance footage from the airport. So now is the surveillance video like from the tower or one of them is from the tower. So one is pretty grainy footage. Um, that one's on the ground and the better quality one doesn't show the cartwheel as well, but is better graphically. So what was so confusing to investigators was the fact that the airplane, when it came to rest, was facing the same direction as the runway. Generally, it was also still on the belly and it was also still mostly intact. Like it still looked like an airplane. It was a fuselage and wings. So they didn't think it could have possibly have flipped over that way. Yeah, I'd oh, be surprised go. too. Considering... So those are the two slides that deployed. Yep, yep on the and left can, side. And you can see that people were just leaving the rear end of the fuselage. I mean, it was on the ground. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. I also love that this video says don't distribute at the bottom, and it's on YouTube. Yep. Yeah, right? But like, it's surprising to me that the wings are actually still intact. It's pretty incredible, actually. The 777 was an extremely well-engineered airplane. And those is wings, an extremely well-engineered The airplane. wings were crucial for, I think, some passengers to exit on the right side of the plane. Probably. The right engine, though, did catch fire. That's there, where the smoke's coming there from. There was one yes. part in the Air Disasters episode where they were talking about, like, they got out of the plane using wreckage as stairs. Yes, that is correct. Because that's what they had. Now... San Francisco Airport is an airport well-known for its very busy airspace and difficult approaches because of that. So, San Francisco is more than a little busy because it's the Bay Area. And there's actually three major commercial airports in the Bay Area. There's San Francisco International, there's the Oakland International, and the San Jose International. So, all three of those airports are within the Bay Area, and all of them have intersecting airspaces, especially Oakland and San Francisco. Making the airspace is very tight, making it very difficult to sequence traffic, and making sure that they all stay in a certain area. So on top of that, there's also like a half dozen other small airports scattered throughout the Bay Area, all in the midst, in the middle of all of those airspaces that you have to be very aware of. So this is incredibly crucial to what makes up the busy airspace that is the Bay Area and the San Francisco approaches. So they typically approach over the the bays, and because of that, they fly right through the middle of all these other airspaces. So they do a lot of non-standard vectoring and approaches for these airports that have them flying high and fast, typically. How many runways does uh, San Francisco Airport have? San Francisco has four runways. There are two parallels that run northeast or northwest to southeast, and then two parallels that run northeast to southwest. So we're looking at a map of it right now, and Jay, they landed on this runway. Um, mm-hmm. And so the plane, you said, landed on the seabed? On so the seawall. It hit the seawall. Right. It hit the seawall. So it hit the rocks right at the front end of the, the runway. Ooh. Sheared the landing gear, and then skidded down the runway, obviously. I bet you the people in this hotel right here got a great view of that. Unfortunately. So this particular kind of approach requires a very skilled and steady hand, needless to say. Based on the fact that they hit the seawall rocks, it was evident that the flight crew was flying way too low. Why would that be? Aren't there things in place to prevent that very thing from happening? Well, upon interviewing air traffic control, it became known that the glide slope was out for both 28 left and 28 right. That is a particular tool used to guide the plane in vertically at a given angle by emitting a signal. Due to construction, they were off. 
Upon being interviewed, the pilot flying expressed that he was excited because he hadn't flown into San Francisco in 10 years, but was stressed because of the lack of glide slope. Yeah, he'd been flying mostly small routes on the A320 for all that time. Now, the glide slope would have been required for such a landing if weather was bad, and can be useful otherwise, but any pilot should be able to fly into San Francisco in clear weather without it. He said he felt pressure to do it, because all the other pilots that day were doing it, so he wanted to prove he could too. He didn't understand what happened, what went wrong. So what on earth was going on in that cockpit? I think we could, by just listening to it. <laughs> yeah. What happened in that cockpit? <laughs> yeah. So the first section of the flight that investigators analyzed using the FDR and CBR was when the flight was between 14 miles out from landing up to 5 miles out. During this time, the flight crew was making their steps to descend, and ATC had instructed them to maintain 180 knots until they were 5 miles out. The pilot flying entered this into the system and commanded flaps 5, but the mode he had selected on the autopilot flight director system was flight level change speed, meaning that it was controlling speed using pitch, not engine power. So to maintain the 180 knots meant that they were not descending as fast as intended. They were above the desired glide path of 3 degrees. They then entered an altitude of 1,800 feet because that is the crossing altitude of a waypoint that was 5.4 nautical miles from the runway. The computer then calculated that they wouldn't reach that altitude until significantly after the waypoint. They did not mention that. When the flight was about 11 nautical miles from the runway, the pilot flying changed the autopilot mode from flight level change speed to vertical speed and set the descent rate to 1,000 feet per minute. This changed the auto throttle mode from hold to speed. This was still not steep enough to get to the desired glide path. At eight and a half miles out, the pilot flying lowered the landing gear, which helped the plane to decelerate and descend. At this point, they were 900 feet from the desired glide path and technically could have used more flaps to get lower, but they didn't. At this point, the pilot monitoring said, this seems a little high, to which the pilot flying agreed. The pilot monitoring said, this should be a bit high, and the pilot flying said, do you mean it's too high? The PM's response was not intelligible, and the pilot flying said, I will descend more and increase the descent rate to 1,500. I can already imagine that when the investigators were listening to the black boxes, they were just confused as hell. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, (laughs) it was confusing as it was in the cockpit. And then 6.3 nautical miles out, they changed it back to 1,000 feet per minute descent rate, although they were still several hundred feet high. Investigators determined they should not have done that, but, you know, we'll move on. So we're off to a great start. The next section investigators analyzed was from 5 nautical miles out to the runway. During the time between when they were 4.5 and and 3 miles out, the following inputs were entered into the system. This is about a minute's worth of time. At 1,850 feet in altitude, flaps 20 was entered, and a change of speed to 152 knots was which helped them descend to 1,550 feet, when the autopilot was then changed to flight level change speed again. And then it was disconnected altogether, and the engines moved to idle to counter the increase in pitch caused by previously changing the autopilot to flight change speed, as well as pushed the column forward. At 1,330 feet, flaps 30 was selected. When interviewed about that short span of time, the pilot flying said that he had changed the autopilot to flight change speed to move the thrust to idle and stay there, making the descent more rapid than vertical speed. He also wasn't sure whether he selected flight change speed. Once he was told that it was selected, he said it didn't really matter because it shouldn't have changed the functionality of the autothrottle, which should have been controlling the speed. 
He still insisted that he didn't think he changed it to flight change speed. Whatever. Long story short, he didn't think that him lowering the engines to idle would matter because the plane would increase engines to match the input speed if needed. So why didn't it? Why did they descend too much and crash into the seawall? This whole series of inputs was performed in rapid succession and was really weird and abnormal. Really, it shouldn't have happened and wasn't really designed to go through all those different modes rapidly. And it took investigators delving into the programming to figure out that that particular series actually disabled the auto throttle altogether. So when the engines were set to idle, the only thing controlling them was the flight crew. And they weren't doing anything with them. So they were trying to rely on the auto throttle and the auto throttle wasn't working. And they didn't know it wasn't working. Nice. Yeah. Wow. Also, the pilot monitoring didn't notice several of these inputs when interviewed because the pilot flying was not verbalizing them as is required by Asiana 777 Pilot Operations Manual. Also, neither pilot noticed that the autothrottle was disabled, even though there was a display on their screen that said it was disabled. Okay, that's a boo-boo on their part. Was it? Isn't that something you can spot easily, though? I don't know. Can you? Yeah. It would have been, I mean, it would definitely would have been noticeable, but it definitely would have been still relatively small. There are so many things on the displays to notice one little thing can be... Kind of difficult. But this sh- the still was in a noticeable spot, so they still should have seen it. I'm just guessing, like, through, like, the I back and forth between each pilot that this was all very confusing between them, and they just didn't take the time to notice the autothrottle being disengaged. Yeah, so this says speed, this says thrust, and when it said hold, that's when it was disabled. Mm, okay. See, so it was coming from somebody who's never been in a cockpit before. So. Right. So, and it, yeah, and it, and it disabled. And I mean, worse off, they didn't know that it did because they weren't trained on it. So let me get into that in a little bit. So they messed up their descent, but that doesn't explain how they didn't notice they messed up their descent. There are tools in place to prevent this kind of thing from happening. The most prominent of these is the Precision Approach Pattern Indicator, or PAPI, at the end of the runway. These are in the form of red and white lights, which I wrote out how they work, and Nick already explained. So. Sorry. Red is dead. Yep, they got four, four red, red. And sure enough, they impacted the seawall. They when, were not dead, though. When the plane descended through 330 feet, the Pappy had three red lights, meaning they were low. But the pilot monitoring said on glide path, and it's low, 17 seconds before impact. But no one else in the cockpit said or did anything. And they said later in interviews they were all aware of the three red lights. The remark of, it's low, could have been applied to either the speed or altitude, and had been said two to three seconds after the fourth light had turned red. The pilot flying said he never saw four red lights, though he pulled back after the it's low comment. One reason they may have been a little slow on the uptake is that they were all fatigued. The pilot flying had two hours less sleep than normal, and all three were flying while they normally would have been sleeping, messing up their circadian rhythm. This was even more messed up by the fact that they flew through eight time zones in ten hours. Investigators determined that fatigue contributed to the pilot flying's errors and the pilot monitoring's errors. Although the observer didn't make as many errors in the approach as the active flight crew, he wasn't properly monitoring either, which was attributed to fatigue. In addition to this, investigators questioned the training of the pilot flying and his transition from the A320 and his lack of understanding of when the auto throttle is active and when it's not. They found that Asiana's transition training, quote, 
did not provide a complete picture of autopilot flight direction system and autothrottle system design logic involving the functioning of the autothrottle in hold mode or the availability of minimum speed protection when the autothrottle was in hold mode, end quote. Furthermore, the Boeing 777 flight crew training manual didn't explain conditions under which the autothrottle wouldn't engage automatically. Through all of that technical mumbo-jumbo, you may have been thinking, gee, that's a lot of automation. You're not wrong. It was very confusing automation. Investigators thought the same thing. It was a clear day. There was no reason that the pilot flying shouldn't have just hand-flown the plane down, as is such a common practice for American pilots. Or at the very least, manipulate the engine throttles, maybe? Investigators found that in their training, Asiana Airlines didn't place a whole lot of emphasis on being able to hand-fly the plane. In fact, this was the first time the pilot flying had tried to land on a visual approach without a glide slope outside of a simulator. Wait a minute. Didn't they have this issue with Korean Air, too? Generally. They really rely on their automation. But... Heavily. But... But... But no. (laughs) But no. The airplane exactly. is, can be good at what it does. You have to know how to fly that, But there's that, a reason why there's people in the cockpit and, and not just the plane flying and, itself. And we'll get into that in a minute. During his simulator sessions, he had only completed six visual approaches and landings. But these were standard traffic patterns using timed turns, computed guidance, visual displays, and autopilot engagement. It is unlikely that he had ever performed a high-energy approach like this one into San Francisco in the 777. Following the accident, I should note, Asiana Airlines did begin training on straight-in, speed-restricted approaches in the 777, specifically. It's important. But that's also a very specific approach, and I feel like you should be able to hand-fly any approach, but, you know. Not to mention, like, get enough sleep before you actually start flying these things. Yes, but that is... It's not that they didn't have enough sleep. Well, the pilot flying didn't. He only had five and a half hours of sleep. Oh, you did not say that before. And so I said that he had two hours less than normal, and his normal was seven and a half. And typically, you need at least seven hours just to function in everyday life. Six. Not seven. Six. I do seven. Well, but still. for you, but in normal human nature, six hours is the least amount. But the, the point being is, you should be able to hand fly an airplane. That's partly why you're a pilot, I would think? Question mark? It's, Who's it's golden. It's golden rule in piloting. Fly the airplane first. No matter the situation you're in, fly the airplane first. Don't rely on anything else to do it for you. Don't rely on anybody else to do it for you. If the airplane's in a bad situation, fly the airplane first. So that means, hands on the controls, get it under control. And the instructor, or the check pilot didn't do anything either not until it was too late no and he's he took control just before the airplane impacted the seawall and part of it they analyzed that he didn't know despite being an instructor he didn't know when the appropriate time was to take control and i don't really go into that much further because it's in the findings and that's it and a lot of that has to do with psychology of humans and that's deep very very deep so i understand why they don't why it's too difficult to get into that because a lot of that has to do with yeah again the psychology of humans when when is the right time to take over at what point do you notice that as a human that another human isn't performing the duties correctly and that they've put the airplane in a dangerous situation at this point i don't think they would have noticed until it was too late like they did, like he did right that's essentially exactly it's right it's not like i mean the stick shaker activated but it didn't activate far out it no, activated and it acted, pretty close to the runway right and it activated once it was already in the pilot monitoring's hands right so 
That's all I got. I mean, there's your bit. Yeah. And so what they found was between between those two pilots that were in the seats as the flight crew, as the active flight crew, there was almost 22,000 hours between the two of them. And neither one of them had hand flown an airplane for probably more than a couple hundred hours of that. They were so reliant on automation and technology in airplanes, particularly at the air, at the airline's culture there in in Korea that that they really didn't even know how to fly an airplane by hand especially one that big and that fast they which were, is astounding to me they 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 were basically there to push the buttons and that's about it and that's what the airline hired them to do and while they were technically quote unquote qualified and trained they didn't really actually know how to fly an airplane i mean that seems like kind of a big thing to like know it is it is a big thing and this was a big point of contention among investigators, too, because then there was two sides to the investigation. There was one side that completely blamed it on pilot error, that it was totally their fault. They, you know, it really, it was kind of a series of things, but they said, you know, it was it was pilot error. They, they weren't paying attention to all the signals that were given to them, and they weren't flying the airplane. Golden rule. Whereas the other side blamed the fact that the autothrottle wasn't active and they didn't know it wouldn't be active after changing the autopilot mode in that particular series right. that there's, it did. There's like 18 different series they could have gone through to do the same thing and one of them disconnected the auto throttle and that's what they did. I feel like though if they were properly trained they would have figured out the auto throttle wasn't working. Which is part of the argument. Yes. For the record, Asiana more or less followed the Boeing manual and even the Boeing manual didn't say that this would cause the auto throttle to disconnect. Well, it was such a weird thing to do that maybe not, but they should have been able to look at that and and see it's the auto throttle's on hold. It's not working. Yeah, is my point. And this didn't really come up a whole lot in the report, but it did come up in the air disasters episode that the pilot flying was relying on the wake up like it's a special wake up mode that the auto throttle in the triple seven has. Yeah, where even if the auto throttle isn't quote-unquote active it'll still control the throttles yeah it's it's a speed protection function that's built into a lot of airplanes actually now but Um, was turned off because of that series of inputs they managed to turn it off and most pilots even at asiana didn't even think that was possible yeah they weren't trained on it they didn't know that the the speed protection function could be turned off they knew that if the airplane was in what they were taught and what they knew was that if the the airplane auto throttle was disengaged that if the airplane's speed got too low, the auto throttle would still kick in anyways and advance the throttles to save the airplane. And it didn't do that in this case because they didn't know they had actually disengaged that function of the auto throttle. Specifically. Specifically. To me, though, that, that still means an over-reliability on... Automation. Automation. Yes, yes. You should know... It is. Okay, they're not working. Maybe the speed... The, the wake-up feature in the triple seven will do it but in my brain being a, a educated human being i would think it's not working i need to work them or find a way to turn the auto throttle back on right and where i can say that this might still be pilot error is that they that what happened most likely is because they were all fatigued is they weren't paying attention to their speed close enough yeah, and, probably. and it, that doesn't even come with the reliance that just comes on the fact that there were so many things happening at once I mean, you have to realize that they covered three nautical miles. That last part where they basically dipped below, got way too slow, that all happened in a matter of a minute and a half, essentially. Making so it wildly confusing. Minute and a half, two minutes. So, you know, that 
that happens really, really fast while everything else is going on. They're trying to stabilize the approach. People are observing things. Air traffic control is talking to them. There's so many things happening. And one of them's under pressure because he's got a training pilot in the right seat. They stop paying attention to the speed. Yeah. And they let the airplane get too slow. There was also a question of roles, I guess, and how there was some confusion with it because there was a captain in the first officer's seat. Right. And there was... And he was pilot in command, technically. And so there was confusion about, well, whose job was it to do this, this, and this? But really, that wasn't a crucial factor. No, I wouldn't think it would be either. It's everyone's job to monitor in that regard. Right, that's crew resource management. Yes. And the guy in the back seat should have been... And they blamed him, too, in some part. And so that's why... Although I think he did a better job than the two who were actually flying the plane. But but he also wasn't monitoring properly, and they attributed that to fatigue as well, purely from crossing into so many different time zones in such a short amount of time. Right. Okay, so we'll talk about crew resource management here, because it was a huge breakdown. And I pointed this out a little bit in my, my story, a little bit indirectly, because you might have noticed that I said several times, like there was... 31 seconds of silence, followed by 12 seconds of silence, followed by 21 seconds of silence. They weren't communicating. They weren't communicating at all. They were in the situation the whole time. The airplane was never stabilized on the approach correctly, and the only time that it was is when they stated it's stabilized, and then they never talked about the fact that it wasn't stabilized basically the rest of the time until it was too late. And so... That was, a, that was an obvious sign that crew resource management just wasn't there. They weren't talking to one another. They weren't observing the situation and having a conversation about it at all. They were just letting the airplane fly, and that was incorrect. There was a big breakdown in crew resource management. Yeah, and I think we all can pretty much agree that sometimes a lack of communication or even just miscommunication in general does oftentimes develop poor poor performances, especially for both of these pilots. Yep. And people died. Right. So then let's talk about those people that died again really quick. Did you like my segue? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the passenger in 41B was actually in seat 41D. Wait, she wasn't in her proper seat? She was not. So she was sitting actually here. Then what happened to the person that was sitting there? Probably switched. They were all friends. Yeah. They probably switched, which was really unfortunate. So she was sitting next to... 41E, who also died. Is she the one that wasn't wearing a seatbelt? We'll get into that. So, okay. yes. Yeah, so, so the person in 41E was in her assigned seat and was observed without a seatbelt. The passenger in 41G was in her assigned seat and wearing her seatbelt. Right here. That's her. F. Nope. It is G. It is G. What? A, B, C, D, E, G, H, J, K. Yeah. How does that make sense? Um, it uh, has to... Okay. Allow me to explain. Please do, because I was confused by this as well. Yes. A typical setup of the 777 is a 252 configuration. Oh. Does it make sense now? Yes. A, B, C, D, E, F. Was it C, D, E, F, G? What? C, D, C, D, E, F. A, B. C, D, E, F, G. Right. So G would have been the outside and the middle. Yes. And then... And then it doesn't explain the lack of F. It does, because there's only three seats in the middle, and they always want the aisle seats to be the same. Oh. In the middle. That makes sense. So, for reference, for those of you who aren't looking at the map currently, this was a 3x3x3 configuration. So, if you ever look at a first class, too, on a 737 or an A320, most airlines, instead of having... A-B-E-F. Or A-B-D-F? Instead of having... A-C-D-F? I don't know. Yeah, instead of having A-B-C-D-E-F, they'll have either A-C-D-F 
Or they'll have A, B, E, F. Okay. Yeah, that's weird. But And they'll just skip it, out on the rest of it. it does because then sense. all the way toward the rest of the, the back. So they always want the outermost to be the same. Yes, that Got makes it. sense. Okay. So the ones all the way against the window should always be the same in the 777. That definitely helps. Moving on. So that's why they did that the way they did it. So 41G was in her seat, so 41, buckled in. Yeah, 41G was in her seat, and her seat belt was on for landing, where she remained with only minor injuries. So the person right next to her. But the one without the seatbelt was ejected and did not survive. This is why you should wear your seatbelt when We're they gonna tell you that several times. Yep. to wear your seatbelt. <laughs> Which should actually be all the time, even if the seatbelt sign is not on. Yes. Yes, unless you have to go to the bathroom. Like yep. Miranda. I only had to go to the bathroom once on a plane, okay? <laughs> yeah, see, and every time that I've been flying, I always decide to put on my seatbelt, even when it's unnecessary. Oh, yeah. Well, you're supposed to. They tell yeah. you to keep your seatbelt on in case you incur- you have turbulence or something. I've, I've seen plenty of examples of why you should leave it on. And if you believe that it's useless on an airplane, you're very ignorant. That is all I have to say. But even so, most of the time, I'm just sleeping. So. Continue. Passenger 41D's seatbelt was found unbuckled and undamaged with no signs of stretch. The passenger was found on the right side of the runway, not far from where one of the aft flight attendants was found. So, yes, one of the flight attendants was ejected, but I believe stayed attached to the seat. So they were injured, but not seriously. And oh, they were seriously injured, okay, they were but in- they lived. Or they were seriously injured, but they lived. But, yes, this, this girl was ejected from the airplane and did not. Passenger, The passenger in 41E was found by, by the plane, though they could not determine if she got there herself if she was brought there by an emergency responder and forgotten, or if she was ejected and landed there, her seatbelt was also found unbuckled and not stretched. Now so, you can mention what actually happened. So now we can mention what happened to her. So, unfortunately... You'll recall that we mentioned that there was plant and dirt stuff in her clothing? Yes, and she had a lot more signs of abrasion and fractures and such than anybody else and, and than either of the other two. What had happened was somehow she ended up on the left side of the airplane after it came to a stop. Forward of the wing, mind you, she was rear of the wing where she was seated. So somehow she ended up way far forward. And we don't know how. We don't know if she was ejected and literally thrown all the way there as the plane did a cartwheel. That could be. We don't know if somebody dragged her there or if she got there herself. The only reason that the she got there herself theory even exists is because why she was found with all those injuries was she was run over by a fire truck. Yeah, they didn't see her. So when they did see her, they said she looked like a doll. And they didn't notice any blood coming from her and thought she was a doll. And then, if you ever listen to any crime podcast ever, it's, it's never not a mannequin. A doll. It is not a mannequin. It's never a mannequin, and it's never a doll. It's and especially after a plane that just crashed. Are you kidding me? Of course, it's a person. So unfortunately, yes, she was run over by a fire truck. The autopsy did eventually determine that they believe she was dead from injuries that occurred before she was run over, which would make sense. If they didn't see any blood or anything like that. I mean, depending on how long she was dead. it. I mean, you know. So you'd have to, so you start to wonder why didn't they see her before they ran over her. Well, what had happened was, and if there's some video footage out there of this, the firefighters sprayed so much foam all over that airplane to disperse the flames. That she was probably covered. She was probably covered in foam at the time that she was run over. So they didn't see her until after the fact. Yeah. 
They didn't know, basically. And so, you you know, there was a lot of things that were kind of wrong with the way the firefighters handled this, too. But you can't really entirely blame them either. They were trying to do their job. If they had kept their seatbelts on, they probably would have stayed in the plane. As a matter of fact, the NTSB found that the two would have survived if they buckled their seatbelts. This is why, upon approach and leaving, and basically every other time you're sitting in a plane, you should be wearing your seatbelt. And to be perfectly honest, seatbelts in planes are way more comfortable than they are in cars. Facts. And I'm sorry, like, sometimes there are large people, and you have to have multiple seats, and it may not be the most comfortable. We are not those people, so we cannot attest to that. However, it is very crucially important that you buckle that you buckle your seatbelt because something like this can happen where you get thrown from the airplane because nothing is holding you in your seat and mind you their seatmate was wearing their seatbelt and probably just had scratches yeah yeah so my theory is the whole reason she ended up where she does where she did and and it's honestly probably the most believable is i believe she was thrown during the cartwheel because I believe you th- it. probably. Because you I think about it, her two seatmates survived with minor injuries. They were still in their seats when the airplane came to rest. She was thrown rearward out of the airplane and ended up forward of the wing. That really, if she was thrown out of the airplane that way, that really only could have happened if, during she, the was, cartwheel. if she was thrown during the cartwheel. It would make the most sense, to be perfectly honest with you, because the person, so the other person who was ejected was sitting right next to them. And in the seating chart, it shows them sitting across the aisle. They weren't sitting in the correct seats. So she was probably thrown out when the tail hit yep. and detached. And when it cartwheeled, nothing was holding the other one in place. And so she fell out the back, too. That's essentially, yes, likely what happened. That would make sense to me, anyway. Very unfortunate, no and matter. And hard to determine either way. Yes, no matter. The passenger in 42A was restrained for landings, but the severity of her injuries were likely from being struck by door 4L when it separated during the final impact. Oh, no! Like, struck in the head. So yep, because she... I suspect that it probably damaged her seat because she had cervical spine damage. Yeah. Which is at the base of your skull. More than likely... That would make sense. Door 4L came separated and impacted the back of her seat and went through it went through it basically yikes she's i mean she lived for six days but she was i think it would have been better if she had just been decapitated because at that point she would have had to live in pain for six days super severe injuries yeah that's horrible at least she had her seatbelt i mean good job sorry so then we talked about the two seat the two slides that opened and the rest did not well, Except one that opened in the cabin, which that's just crazy to me and horribly unfortunate. So the NTSB thought this was an atrocity because it to is. Say, yes. Um, so one of the investigators took it upon himself to perform crash tests and actually did that in a facility for car crashes. Yeah. That must have been interesting to just walk into that place like, hey, I need to test this thing for a plane. Yeah. But it was, I mean, it was a. They did a full-on, they rigged it up and tested it. And they found that the inflation mechanism still worked after a low-speed impact, but did not after a high-speed impact. Isn't that the most important, though? Yes. So they found that the slide would be resilient, it could be inflated, all this stuff, except that 
due to a high-speed impact, the portion that actually makes it automatically inflate would shear and keep it from actually automatically inflating. Which, fun fact, when things break, it's almost always in shear bending. Anyway, so there was a recommendation that somebody, Boeing, reviewed that data that he gathered, created, etc., um, and improved the design? Yes. Needless to say, it was improved, and the slides actually function the way they're supposed to now. Yeah, because that's kind of important. Slides, kind of. Slides are literally the like kill-no-kill kill type thing that can happen. Slides are crucially important. They also become flotation devices, too, which is yeah, also very had, important. This was close to being a water landing if that had happened. Um... You can't really fit on two slides very well with more than a 200 people on board. Uh, yeah, and even with an extra raft, which all airplanes have, it, it, it wouldn't have been enough space. What is the slide configuration? How many of those detach for the triple seven? All of them. So do they have spares in the ceiling? They do. Okay. I would. I, I feel don't... like every airplane Cause, has spares. Because well, yes. we've been on planes where not all of the slides detach. So you have to grab the extra rafts. Those and are smaller planes, though. I know. I That's why I'm saying I don't know about because I've never been on a 777 or any wide body. We're trying to remedy that. Yeah, we will. But no, there are absolutely rafts as well in those, too. Okay. There's yeah. extras. Which, by the way, a uh, little plug here, always read the safety card. Always know where the rafts are. Always know where extra life vests are, Cause where if for the whatever, rafts are. If for whatever reason the flight attendants are incapacitated... Someone needs to get the heck out of there, my dude. Also, just if if you're by a door that has a slide that detaches, figure out how to detach the slide. Oftentimes there is a knife. That's like inside a pocket in the slide that you have to detach the slide with. Read your safety cards. Just read the safety card. Everyone, I, I swear, there's been multiple flights where people are asleep I've also been one of those people. But you know where they are, so it's um, okay. <laughs> Where people have been asleep, or they have their headphones on, or they're watching a movie. Please don't do that. It's They have it... I know it's redundant, and you've he- heard it 10,000 times. But it's different in each plane. It's different in every plane. It's different with every different flight carrier. It's, it's just different. Especially if you're on a foreign carrier. It's like, different. Just... Look at the freaking information card. It takes you literally, like, maybe three minutes to read the card. Just read the stupid card. Not to mention, like, the flight attendants, they also do, like, safety demonstrations before the flight even starts. They're required to do that for a reason. Please watch. This has been a public service announcement. <laughs> <laughs> this has been our TED Talk, and now we're going to get into findings. <laughs> and there are 30 of them. Yeah. Hold on tight, everybody. I'm going to try my best. So... You can probably skip a couple. Uh, the first one, <laughs> literally the first sentence is, the following were not factors in the accident, so I'm not even going to read that one. <laughs> okay. Although the instrument landing system glide slope was out of service, the lack of a glide slope should not have precluded the pilot's successful completion of a visual approach. Absolutely not. Because a visual approach means you probably don't need a glide slope. You don't. It was perfectly... that's an instrument approach. It was a perfectly clear day, and all of the flights before them had managed to land just fine. And the reality is, is a visual approach actually means once you're on that, that straight-end path, you're allowed to employ any function you want. You can do an instrument approach once you're on that path, that straight-end, but the visual 
also allows you to hand fly the airplane. And in most cases in the United States, that is done. It is a yes. common practice in the United States. To hand and fly. not for Asian countries for some reason at this time. I mean, it is, but for this, for Asiana, it was not. The flight crew mismanaged the airplane's vertical profile during the initial approach, which resulted in the airplane being well above the desired glide path when it reached the 5 nautical mile point, and this increased the difficulty of achieving a stabilized approach. They say it so nicely in the report, and I can just imagine myself swearing up and down, being like, they did this, this, and this, and they're dumb, and... I would totally have done that. <laughs> like, they are... What did that... What? <laughs> Miranda, we all know how much you love to rant. (laughs) And just, it's hashtag Miranda's mad at history. Yeah. (laughs) Miranda gets mad at history. (laughs) The flight crew's mismanagement of the airplane's vertical profile during the initial approach led to the period of increased workload that reduced the pilot's monitoring's awareness of the pilot flying's actions, and the time of the unintended deactivation of the automatic airspeed control, or the auto the autothrottle. Yep. About 200 feet, one or more flight crew members became aware of the low airspeed and low path conditions, but the flight crew did not initiate a go-around until the airplane was below 100 feet, at which point the airplane did not have the performance capability to accomplish a go-around, which we talked about in my Miranda episode, it's a big machine and it needs time. Yes. To react. The airplane is heavy, and even if you go full throttle all of a sudden, the airplane's still going to take time to To get to the point where it can climb back out again. Yeah, you have to anticipate the airplane's moves based on the fact that there is a delay in everything you do, thanks to also the fact that it is a turbojet. Turbojets have a delay in thrust because it takes time for them to spool and to gain pressure. Pressure takes time to build. So the engines take time to increase throttle. So even if you push the throttles all the way forward, if the airplane was to react as quickly as you do, it would actually stall the compressor because it wouldn't suck in enough air. And so the airplane has to react slower. The flight crew was experiencing fatigue, which likely degraded their performance during the approach, which we talked about. Yep. Non-standard communication and coordination between the pilot flying and the pilot monitoring when making selections on the mode control panel to control the autopilot flight director system and autothrottle likely resulted, at least in part, from role confusion and subsequently degraded their awareness of the AFDS and AT modes. So again, this is two, two captains in the two flight crew seats. And they didn't understand who was doing what roles. Yeah. Not to mention one of them was playing an instructor. Yes. It just, it boggles the mind. Insufficient flight crew monitoring of airspeed indications during the approach likely resulted from expectancy, increased workload, fatigue, and automation reliance. The delayed initiation of a go-around by the pilot flying and the pilot monitoring after they became aware of the airplane's low path and airspeed likely resulted from a combination of surprise, non-standard communication, and role confusion. So just basically saying they were all overwhelmed. As a result of complexities in the 777 automatic flight control system and inadequacies in the related training and documentation, the pilot flying had an inaccurate understanding of how the autopilot flight director system and autothrottle auto interacted to control airspeed, which led to his inadvertent 
deactivation of the automatic airspeed control. So I have some quarrels with this because, yes, this is true. Okay, he didn't fully understand how the automated systems in the, the 777 works, the work, like the auto throttle and how that works in conjunction with the flight director and the autopilot and the different modes on the flight director and autopilot. And that's all fine and dandy, except that it sounds like when they asked him about that, uh, the flight the flight level change speed, it sounded like he didn't even think he activated that. So it sounds almost more like not only did he not understand it, but he made a mistake. And that mistake is what actually led it to be disconnected. And it was kind of unclear. Their description of the interview was so the the reason odd. they the reason they came up with this finding was because okay he made the mistake and they got that part, but then when they interviewed him he said well but that wouldn't have changed the autothrottle's function of keeping the airplane from under speeding basically, and that was what gave away the fact that he didn't understand how it works because at that point he didn't know that he had made the autothrottle not function. If the autothrottle automatic engagement function, or wake-up, or a system with similar functionality had been available during the final approach, it would likely have activated an increased power about 20 seconds before impact, which may have prevented the accident. Which we, we just talked about. If it was working, it probably would have saved it. But yeah, it so if it was on. Yep. A review of the design of the 777 automatic flight control system with special attention given to the issues identified in this accident investigation and the issues identified by the Federal Aviation Administration and European Aviation Safety Agency during the 787 certification program could yield insights about how to improve the intuitiveness of the 777 and 787 flight crew interfaces as well as those incorporated into future designs. And let me tell you, having seen the 787's autopilot and flight director system, it is so much simpler and easier to figure out and so much easier to look at and just understand. And I, I, I think they did a really good job of determining how the 777's automated systems were really overwhelming to understand versus how the 787 was. Yeah. If the pilot monitoring had supervised a trainee pilot in operational service during his instructor training, he would likely have been better prepared to promptly intervene when needed to ensure effective management of the airplane's flight path. So basically saying that the, the pilot monitoring, the, the instructor pilot, just didn't, didn't do enough in time. Yes. If Asiana Airlines had not allowed an informal practice of keeping the pilot monitoring, so PM, flight director, or FD, on during a visual approach, the PM would likely have switched off both FDs, which would have corrected the unintended deactivation of the automatic airspeed control. I can see why you said that this doesn't make sense, because that absolutely hasn't, I have no idea. So I didn't bring this up at all, and I can explain this a little bit. So on on the displays in front of each one of the pilots, you can actually turn on and off the flight director system for each one of their sides of the cockpit. So in other words, it was visually visually you get a like indications of where you are on the flight path and all these things given by the flight director. And at one point, they had actually disconnected the when when I said during the story the flight director off, they turned the flight director off on the pilot flying's side, but the pilot monitoring kept his flight director on, which now means there's a discrepancy between the two sides of the airplane, and it still assumes that some automated functions are intended between one side being on and the other one side being off. The airplane assumes that that's then the pilot flying, 
Oh. And it was not. And so there was a lot of breakdown because the, the flight director didn't understand what was happening with the flight crew. That's the human factor. And that's not the airplane's fault. It was doing exactly what it was told to do. And what this is saying is that if they had turned the flight director off on both sides, the auto throttle would have then anticipated the speed change because it, it would have thought that they were, it didn't know which pilot was actually the pilot flying anymore. And it wasn't relying, they weren't relying on other automated functions or the, the flight director's given directions. So basically... If they both have been shut off, it probably wouldn't have been an issue. Yeah, it would have actually reactivated the auto throttle's speed protection function. Okay. Now, why... You understand my confusion? Yes. Now, why is because the flight director being on on one side, the flight director is giving the pilot direction on what the airplane needs to maintain the given information inputted into the autopilot. The autopilot doesn't have to be on... They can just be flying the airplane, but with the auto throttle off, it's telling them, it probably told them to increase the speed on the flight director on the pilot monitoring side. But because the airplane assumed that then he was the pilot flying and he was supposed to be following the flight director, it didn't do that on its own. Okay. Kind of, conf- it's super confusing. I get it. Yeah, but that makes sense now. Like, now I understand why they had that finding. Yeah. By encouraging flight crews to manually fly the airplane before the last 1,000 feet of the approach, Asiana Airlines would improve its pilots' abilities to cope with maneuvering changes commonly experienced at major airports and would allow them to be more proficient in establishing stabilized approaches under demanding conditions. In this accident, the pilot flying may have better used pitch trim. That's actually what it says. Yes. Recognized that the airspeed was decaying and then... And taken the appropriate corrective action of adding power. Yeah, so basically saying that Asiana's practice was the pilots are to continue flying by the autopilot until 1,000 feet above. That's it. And that last 1,000 feet happens fast. Yeah, And obviously. so they're saying basically the only time they hand fly the airplane is that what last 1,000 feet. Are you kidding me? <laughs> like, like actually get some time in performing the entire visual approach and performing the pitch trim and the auto throttle and the throttle yourself without the auto throttle or the or the autopilot a context dependent low energy alert would help pilots successfully recover from unexpected low energy situations like the situation encountered by the accident pilots saying they were too slow and too low the flight Attendants acted appropriately when they initiated an emergency evacuation upon determining there was a fire outside door 2R, which is close to the wing. Further, the delay of about 90 seconds in initiating an evacuation was likely due partly to the pilot monitoring's command not to begin an immediate evacuation, as well as disorientation and confusion. Why did he not have them do an immediate evacuation? More than likely, it's because he was talking to... Uh, he had probably told them to hold to make sure that the, the airplane, like, wasn't still moving. Mm. And then he contacted the tower, actually, first to tell them that they had had an accident. And then he probably told them to evacuate after that. Okay, that, that makes That sense. part's not very clear to me because I couldn't, I couldn't find that portion anywhere. Passengers 41B and 41E were unrestrained for landing and ejected through the ruptured tail of the airplane at different times during is. the impact sequence. It is likely that these passengers would have remained in the cabin and survived if they had been wearing their seatbelts. Wear your seatbelt. Okay. So there it is. <laughs> Passenger 42A is likely restrained was yeah, was likely restrained for landing and the severity of her injuries was likely due to being struck by door 4L 
when it separated during the plane's final impact, which we already talked about. The dynamics of the impact sequence in this accident were such that occupants were thrown forward and experienced a significant lateral force to the left, which resulted in serious passenger injuries that included numerous left-sided rib fractures and one left-sided head injury. And that makes sense to me. I mean, they cartwheeled up and to the left, and when it impacted the ground again, that's a heavy, heavy impact. Yeah. The fact that not more people died makes me kind of surprised. It's pretty amazing, and honestly, the way that they they were thrown around like that is just, I can't even imagine. I think that's part of why, though, that the engines were designed to come off. Yes. Is that it removes a fire source. Yeah. Because one of them lit fire. (laughs) Yeah, the right engine. Yeah. Lit on fire. Boom. So I think that's a contributing factor as to why there wasn't a more disastrous fire and why more people survived. and... You can actually go back to San Francisco's history as to why the landing gear was designed to shear as well. Yep. And that's because of the 747 that we talked about, the Pan Am, that went through the the instrument landing system. Was this the same runway? No, this was a different runway. Dang it. And on that instrument landing system, when it went through, it didn't shear the landing gear. Instead, the landing gear went up into the fuselage and uprooted seats. Yeah. And so, in this case, they designed the airplane because they learned from that to shear the landing gear which was much safer because then it didn't go through the fuselage instead it ended up chunked out in the middle of the runway the reasons for the high number of serious injuries and the high thoracic spine in this accident were poorly understood okay i don't know so basically they don't understand why so many people ended up with bad back back injuries injuries. i mean probably just from heavy impact ground yeah and if you look at at a lot of the photos a lot of the seat backs broke that's probably wait where are there pictures of this Oh, Uh, I have some on the website. The release and inflation of the 1R and right R slide rafts inside the airplane cabin was a result of the catastrophic nature of the crash, which preceded loads far exceeding design certification limits. Yes, I guess two of them inflated inside the the cabin, but one of them was actually pinned somebody. One of them pinned somebody, yeah. Clearer guidance is needed to resolve the concern among airport fire departments and individual firefighters that the potential risk of injuring airplane occupants while piercing aircraft structure with the skin-penetrating nozzle outweighs the potential benefit of an early and aggressive interior attack using this tool. There's obviously a story behind that one. Somebody must have been injured by some specific tool they were using. There we go. There we go. Most of those are melted at this point. It's hard to tell there. You can see how they got crushed against one another. Yeah. Oh, so they collapsed against each other. Yes. That's yes. why they had back injuries. I would think. A lot of that has to do with the impact. So for yeah. those of you who don't look at our website, which is a lot of you, I don't fault you, whatever. Um, <laughs> the seats bent forward during this impact. and that's Kind of. I mean, they kind of crumpled just over one another. I, but from from what you can see from that photo, they mostly crumpled forward, which means your, your the back of your seat crumpled against you. And that's probably due to the sheer G's from a cartwheeling and impacting technically twice. Yeah. Well, and to be honest, some people's instinct might have actually been correct in a way that might have actually gotten them injured. Um, In that, as soon as they felt the rear impact, a lot of them were likely thrown forward anyways. And then they just remained in a brace position, being that that's what most people are told. And then when they re-impacted the seats in front of them crushed them 
Yikes. That would be extremely painful. And depending on the safety card you read, the brace position is different because it is left to the airlines. Some brace positions do ask you to grab your ankles, which if you look at the uh, pitch of a lot of seats, ain't exactly possible. But a lot of what's being worked on in the industry is how to make better seat backs and better floors that hold better seat tracks, how to hold the seats in place better and how to make sure that they maintain structural standards to not injure somebody. Medical buses were not effectively integrated into San Francisco International Airport's monthly preparation drills, which played a part in their lack of use in the initial response to the accident and delayed the arrival of backboards to treat seriously injured pa- uh, passengers. So those of you who don't know what a backboard is, I was a lifeguard for a couple years. So back- backboards are used for people who have head, neck, and back injuries. And the reason why you have to use a headboard is it keeps your spine and your neck and everything along that in alignment so that they don't try to like move you in any way because potentially if you move a certain way, you could break your back, you could break your neck, yeah, and you could become paralyzed. And in case th- that you are in a, a state like that, you need to be on a backboard so that they can check you out before they have you move, which is why if you ever think you have a back injury of any kind, you should never like nod your head yes or no. You should always answer yes or no, uh, just from, you know, me being CPR trained in the past, uh, that's what backboards are used for. So essentially, it's just to stabilize the body. Yes, it's to make, it's to stabilize the neck and the spine so that people are not paralyzed more if they're already paralyzed or if they're close to being paralyzed, you don't paralyze them, which is why if you ever like hit yourself really hard in a pool or something, you're not supposed to jump in. You're supposed to slide in. As a lifeguard, this is off track, but you're supposed to slide in to get the backboard underneath them so that the waves don't cause them their back to move. Right. It's a big thing. Anyway, if you ever needed to wonder what backboards are used for, that's why. Yeah, and I mean, the buses too kind of makes sense. Like, they, they couldn't... There was suddenly hundreds of people just running everywhere. And there's usually only one backboard per ambulance. Yeah. So and that's they, why it was a problem. They needed to treat more injured people quickly, and they just didn't have the equipment there and quickly to deal with it. Guidance on task prioritization for responding aircraft rescue and firefighting personnel that addresses the presence of severe... severe seriously. Seriously. Oh my gosh. I was like, what? Is that word? Seriously. Of seriously (laughs) injured or deceased persons in the immediate vicinity of the accident airplane is needed to minimize the risk of these persons being struck or rolled over by vehicles during emergency response operations. So talking about don't running over people. Just whatever it means. They talked about, yeah. That's what they were talking about when they ran over that poor girl. Which I don't, honestly, I don't think they could have seen her under the phone. No, but it's guidance on how to not operate through that foam if you can help yeah, it don't then. don't just go barreling through it yeah the overall triage process in this mass casualty incident was effective with the exception of the failure of responders to verify their visual assessments of the condition of passenger 41e so they couldn't see her yeah The San Francisco Fire Department's aircraft rescue and firefighting staff level was instrumental in the department's ability to conduct a successful interior fire attack and successfully rescue five passengers who were unable to self-evacuate amid rapidly deteriorating cabin conditions. 
So they saved five people who were stuck in the plane. Yeah, people that were stuck in the plane when it was burning. Well, and there were quite a fire. few passengers that jumped to help, too, as many as they possibly could. But it's hard when the cabin's on fire. You're already in shock because you were there. And then, you know, one of them in the Air Disasters episode actually talked about he was really relieved when the firefighters show up, showed up to and got in the cabin to start helping finding other people. That was the moment where he felt like he was okay to, okay leave. to leave. Yeah. Because and that's when he did leave. If you watch yeah. any interviews of this crash, his name is Ben Levy or Levi. I don't know. Um, he has a very thick French accent. <laughs> Although no additional injuries or loss of life were attributed to the fire attack supervisor's lack of aircraft rescue and firefighting, knowledge and training, the decisions and assumptions he made demonstrate the potential strategic and tactical challenges associated with having non-ARFF trained personnel in positions of command at an airplane accident. Although some of the communications difficulties encountered during the emergency response, including the lack of radio interoperability, there we go. So they had different radio frequencies. Have been remedied. Others, such as the breakdown in communications between the airport and city dispatch centers, should be addressed. So having issues getting um, people from the city to help. The alert three sections of San Francisco International Airport's 2008 and 2012 emergency procedures manuals are not sufficiently robust and anticipate and prevent the problems that occurred in the accident response. So okay. first responder, they, they spend a lot of time saying there was errors with the first responder's abilities. Yes, although only three people died, so... It's pretty impressive, it that really is. That is pretty impressive. I mean, that shows how well the 777 is engineered, too, to go through that kind of chaos and actually everybody could have survived likely except maybe the one that was struck by the door yes yeah this could have been so much worse it really could have and the fact that it wasn't kind of surprising is astounding it's very astounding that only three people died from this happening and if when you when and if you look at the videos you will see how weird it is that only one three people died and if two of them were wearing their seatbelts like you're supposed to be doing, they probably would have survived too. So, the probable cause, as usual, verbatim from the report, is very long. It's so long. So, <laughs> buckle sorry in, in buckle advance. up. <laughs> oh, that's terrible. I'm sorry in advance. More for my reading ability than anything. Okay. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the flight crew's mismanagement of the airplane's descent during the visual approach, the pilot flying's unintended deactivation of automatic airspeed control, the flight crew's inadequate monitoring of airspeed, and the flight crew's delayed execution of a go-around after they became aware that the airplane was below acceptable guide path and airspeed tolerances. Contributing to the accident were, one, the complexities of the autothrottle and autopilot flight director systems that were inadequately dis described in Boeing's documentation and Asiana's pilot training, which increased the likelihood of mode error. Two, the flight crew's non-standard communication and coordination regarding the use of the autothrottle and autopilot flight director systems. Three, the pilot flying's inadequate training on the planning and executing of visual approaches. Four, the pilot monitoring slash instructor pilot's inadequate supervision of the pilot flying. And five, flight crew fatigue, which they 
likely degraded their performance. You were doing really good right up until that. Just I know. That last one. I was really impressed. If yeah. you really want to listen to Miranda struggle reading things, listen to the Miranda song. But it's really good. Yeah, like that it. wasn't that bad. Okay. Yesterday so, was kind of a struggle. Listen. <laughs> it, it, two days ago? Two days ago? Two days ago. Yeah. So let's talk about this probable cause really quick because, yes, this is so much to take in. They blame basically everything. They blame the auto, the automation, and they blame the pilots. And uh, this was actually – they mention it both in the, the uh, Air Disasters episode as well as just throughout this report that there were differing opinions between the people at the NTSB because there were so many factors in this accident about what really was maybe more the cause one than the other. And because there was a disagreement – over that, there were actually four separate opinions given by the NTSB directly from the four different NTSB people that were disagreeing on it. And a lot of this probable cause, while there's five written in here, the four of those are actually opinions of the, the contributing to the accident, we, how you read the one through five. Yeah. Four of those are opinions from the NTSB. Yeah. From individuals at the NTSB. I feel like And all, that was the first time that had ever happened. All of those play into each other, though. I mean, I would agree with every single one of them. Yes, absolutely. And Hands that's, down. And that's why they agreed to put them all in there, because they said, this isn't a one-cause accident. There's so many things, just like any. And, you know, they, they all wanted to find out what the probable, like, the most likely piece that broke the, you know, the, they say in the episode, the straw that broke the camel's back. But that, that just, none of them felt that, it was just that they were all disagreeing on it, so they put all of them in there. Yep. So, moving on to recommendations, there's quite a few, three different sections of them. To the FAA, to Asian Airlines, and to Boeing, and then to the Aircraft Rescue and Firefighting Working Group, uh, and to the city and county of San Francisco. So, there's actually five sections. <laughs> yeah, there's five sections. I did not read that correctly the first time. That's but okay. But that's okay. So, to the FAA. Require Boeing to develop enhanced 777 training that will improve flight crew understanding of auto throttle modes and automatic activation system logic through improved documentation, courseware, and instructor training. So, However, if they had just flown the plane in... Yes, but they would still have to know this for a future flight. And I think this one is really, you know, this one... This recommendation is really in place only because that system already exists. Yeah. So they didn't want to recommend changing the system because it's so complicated as it is. They wanted to recommend just reiterating like you More have training. to train yeah. on this system because it's so complicated. Once the enhanced Boeing 777 training has been developed as requested in the first recommendation, require operators and training providers to provide this training to 777 pilots. So just making it available Common to, knowledge. to people who fly the airplane. Require Boeing to revise its 777 flight crew training manual stall protection demonstration to include an explanation and demonstration of the circumstances in which the auto throttle does not provide low speed protection. There it is. So they were relying on the fact that they trained on them. They showed them in the simulator like, look, the airplane will recover. It has speed protection. That's not always there, and they didn't show them when it isn't. Right. And so they're saying, show them so that they know. Once the revision to the Boeing 777 flight crew training manual has been completed, as requested in the safety recommendation, as we just said, require operators and training providers to incorporate the revised stall protection demonstration in their training. So just people like Asiana Airlines to include it in their training for their pilots. Yeah. Convene and... 
expert panel, including members with expertise in human factors, training, and flight operations, to evaluate methods for training flight crews to understand the functionality of automated systems for flight path management, identify the most effective training methods, and revise training guidance for operators in this area. Convene a special certification design review of how the Boeing 777 automatic flight control system controls airspeed and use the results of that evaluation to develop guidance that will help manufacturers improve the intuitiveness of the existing and future interfaces between flight crews and automatic systems. So there it is. So they're saying they want the FAA to figure out a more standard way of structuring autopilot systems to be intuitive for pilots. Which they did in the 787, which they much said better. in before. Task a panel of human factors, aviation operations, and aircraft design specialists, which as the avionics system harmonization working group, to develop design requirements. Yeah, that doesn't make sense. To develop design requirements for context-dependent low-energy learning systems for airplanes engaged in commercial operations. I think that's because you said something else instead of such as. I did. Sorry, my brain. It's okay. You're doing it. Conduct research that examines the injury potential to occupants in accidents with significant lateral forces. And if the research deems it necessary, implement regulations to mitigate the hazards identified. Conduct research to identify the mechanism that produces high thoracic spinal injuries in commercial aviation accidents, and if the research deems it necessary, implement regulations to mitigate the hazards identified. Was it Just supposed to be seats. thoracic? It was. Is it thoracic? Yes, it's thoracic. Where is it? Oh, thoracic. Sorry. It's okay. Did I say thoracic? Yes. <laughs> thoracic. Sorry. Jurassic. Jurassic. <laughs> Jurassic. <laughs> I'm sorry. Analyze, in conjunction with slide-slash-raft manufacturers, the information obtained in this accident investigation and evaluate the adequacy of slide-and-slide-slash-raft certification standards and test methods certified, specified, and Federal Aviation Administration regulations and guidance materials. If appropriate, modify certification standards and test methods for future slide and slide slash raft design based on the results of this evaluation. That's All just because that. the flight the, the slides went inside. Yeah, a yeah. whole lot of freaking words just to say they need to redesign the slides. Yeah. Work with the Aircraft Rescue and Firefighting Working Group and equipment manufacturers to develop and distribute more specific policies and guidance about when, how, and where to use the high-reach, extendable turrets' unique capabilities. I think that one goes hand-in-hand with the the finding earlier that, like, the the special tools they have that do things wrong. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They also don't uh, trust me to read this correctly, so now... All, all of us are following along. <laughs> <laughs> we are all reading on different screens now. Once the minimum staffing level has been developed by the Aircraft Rescue and Firefighting, or ARFF, working group, as requested in safety recommendation... Uh, the one... The one before. Uh, it's actually not. It's, it's like one, four. It's later. It's much later. Is it? Yeah. Oh, dear Lord. This is 48. Down. It's 60. It's way further down. Okay, so farther down. Uh, amend 14 Code of Federal Regulations, 139.319, 139. 
to require a minimum ARFF staffing level that would allow exterior firefighting and rapid entry into an airplane to perform interior firefighting and rescue of passengers and crew members. That Code of Federal Regulations Part 139 has to do with airports that operate uh, scheduled commercial flights. So big, big planes. Big planes, big airports dealing with lots of passengers have to have a certain standard of firefighting. Work with the Aircraft Rescue and Firefighting, or ARFF, working group to develop and distribute policy guidance and training materials to ensure that all airport and mutual aid firefighting officers placed in command in the, at the scene of an aircraft accident have at least a minimum level of ARFF training. So, somebody saying, wasn't qualified. Somebody wasn't qualified. O.D. <laughs> issue a cert alert to all part 139 airports to distribute the information contained in the federal aviation administration's legal interpretation of 14 code of federal regulations 139.319 that requires all personnel assigned to aircraft rescue and firefighting duties to meet the initial and recurrent training and live fire drill requirements. live Live. live. They, they're live. spelt the same, so my brain went live. Yep, I got it. Um, and live fire drill requirements and clarify how the FAA will ensure this regulation. Enforce. 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 See, okay, to those of you who don't understand my learning disability, reading and writing, really, you can tell. My brain's like, this is the word, and then it's not the word. It's okay. And now you know. That's okay. Uh, okay, last one for me to read because my brain's tired now. Yep, and I'll take over. Conduct. I'll take over. <laughs> okay, if you want to. Conduct a special inspector, and I can't even say it. Let Inspection. me restart. I can. I know what the word is. <laughs> Conduct a special inspection of San Francisco International Airport's emergency procedures manual and work closely with the airport to ensure that the airport meets its obligations under Part 139.325. Yeah. Huzzah. Okay. Someone please help me. (laughs) Recommendations to Asiana Airlines. Reinforce, through your pilot training programs, flight crew adherence to standard operating procedures involving making inputs to the operation of auto flight system controls on the Boeing 777 mode control panel and the performance of related callouts. A lot of that has to do with the the breakdown of crew resource management, actually. Revise your flight instructor operating experience qualification criteria to ensure that all instructor candidates are supervised and observed by a more experienced instructor during operating experience or line training until the new instructor demonstrates proficiency in the instructor role. So this is instructorception. They're saying the instructors need to be instructed and make sure that those instructors are trained well enough to instruct the further instructors to to make sure that they can do their job sufficiently enough to instruct a regular pilot without needing... Supervision from a regular, from another more experienced instructor. You, do you follow? <laughs> so, in other words, just get an instructor that's qualified. Teach the teachers how to teach so they can further teach more people. Yes. Sure. Basically, they were saying this instructor wasn't qualified enough to instruct. Got it. He needed to have another instructor better teach him. Yes. Okay, moving on. Issue guidance in the Boeing 777 pilot operating manual that after disconnecting the autopilot on a visual approach, if flight director guidance is not being followed, both flight director switches should be turned off. Yep. Yes, so it's not being a weird thing that's happening in the cockpit where the plane's like, oh, this person's flying now. 
Modify your automation policy to provide for more manual flight, both in training and in-line operations, to improve pilot proficiency. Huge one. Definitely. Did fly the aircraft. Hand fly it. Dear Lord. Stop, like, stop like, using automation for okay. everything. To Boeing. Revise your flight crew operating manual for the 777 to include a specific statement that when the autopilot is off and both flight director switches are turned off, the auto throttle mode goes to speed mode and maintains the mode control panel selected speed. So in other words, it would have had the speed protection if both flight directors had been off as well. Yes. But they didn't do that, so they didn't they didn't do that. <sighs> Use the guidance developed by the low energy alerting system panel created in accordance with a some previous safety recommendation. Develop and inval- evaluate a modification to Boeing wide body automatic flight control systems to help ensure that the aircraft energy state remains at or above the minimum desired energy condition for any portion of the flight. So while there's a stall warning, they basically want the airplane to have further warnings that says, hey, you're getting pretty low on speed and you might want to do something about it. Um, do a thing. And I can tell you on the 787, actually, that there's a yellow zone. And it's not that that doesn't exist on these other airplanes, but the yellow zone basically tells you, hey, you're getting into the lower energy zone where this airplane won't maneuver very well. And then if you get any lower, you're just going to stall. And when it gets into that zone, it already gives you an oral warning that you have to respond to. What plane did you say that is? The 787. Oh, okay. And you have to respond to that warning. You have to... Make sure you're aware of it and correct for it, or the alert won't go away. Recommendations to the Aircraft Rescue and Firefighting Working Group. Work with the FAA and equipment manufacturers to develop and distribute more specific policies and guidance about when, how, and where to use the high-reach extendable turret's unique capabilities. There it is again. Work with medical and medical legal professionals. Oh my gosh. There's a word. Organizations to develop and distribute guidance on task prioritization for responding aircraft rescue and firefighting personnel that includes recommended best practices to avoid striking or rolling over seriously injured or deceased persons with ARFF vehicles in a mass casualty situation. Which is the person they're talking about. Just going back to that person who got run over by a fire truck. Yeah. Don't go plowing Basically, don't do stuff. that again. A yeah. lot of it is because my understanding of the situation and what happened, and I've watched some videos and read some things, um, there was a really big breakdown in leadership and communication between all of them. And so while they were focused on trying to help people and put out the fires, they were so focused on those tasks without much prioritization and enough help from and enough guidance from you know a, a supervisor to say, hey, whoa, whoa. Before you jump in on that action, there might be something there might you might be putting another task at risk or, you know, causing something else to go wrong or safety of the passengers and this and that. And that's that's how they believe that she got run over is because they were kind of carelessly driving around trying to put out the flames rather than kind of paying attention to where they were going. Makes sense. I mean, I get it. You know, those guys, they were just trying to do the jobs. Like, they yeah, the fire. again, you can't entirely blame them because it's not, you know... Especially were, if she was covered in foam. They were in a really, really tough situation. Yeah. They didn't mean to run her over. Just but to be she, more careful in in future. But if she had been alive before she was run over, that would have been a much bigger problem. Yes, it would have been. But they determined that she probably was not. So. Correct. And quite possibly some of these firefighters, they never encountered, like, a crashed plane, so... Oh, you'd be surprised. I would say some, not all, but some. It doesn't take a crash plane to need to have experience. Yeah. Anyway, 
develop a minimum aircraft rescue and firefighting staffing level that would allow exterior firefighting and rapid entry into an airplane to perform interior firefighting and rescue passengers and crew members. So have enough people. Yep. Who are trained. Develop and distribute in conjunction with the FAA guidance and training materials to ensure that all airport and mutual aid firefighting officers placing command at the scene of an aircraft accident have at least a minimum level of aircraft rescue and safety training. I think that just reiterated a previous one. Yes, yeah, yeah, we does. already read through that one. Yep. <laughs> to the city and county of San Francisco. Only two recommendations. Routinely integrate the use of all San Francisco fire department medical and firefighting vehicles in future disaster drills and preparatory exercises. So bringing in the outside sources to the outside firefighters. If it's a big enough fire. If it's big enough, which they could have really used them there because there were so many people just running around. Yep. The people who got off the plane. Yeah. And so because of that, they're saying like they really need to coordinate one, at least one drill and get everyone involved. Sounds like fun. Implement solutions to the communications deficiencies identified in ICF International's after-action report as soon as practicable. That one I don't understand at all, but I also don't know what any of that is. So, so I'm know, assuming there's another report that said that their after-action actions mm-hmm. weren't great and s- to address those as soon as possible. Probably. And that's it. And that, that's all. Holy this cow. This a long was, episode. That yeah. was a mouthful. So congrats, here's your long episode after we sucked. <laughs> it's okay. We and we're, we're sorry. In, we in figured it now. all out. I was going to say in advance, but <laughs> this isn't in advance. <laughs> yeah. This is now after the fact, no matter what. So thank you for continuing to listen. And again, we're sorry that we missed out last week. It just ended up, it was literally the worst case scenario. We sat, uh, Christy sat down on Monday to do some editing and found out that the flash drive that we had everything on isn't working. So... We are sorry. <laughs> and now you get this one, which we weren't planning on doing till way farther in advance. So you're welcome. So we brought this forward because I like this one. Anyway. I mean, I don't, I, I hate saying I like an accident. I know, but, but the point a is, good is one. I, I think this is an important one anyways. And I think I, I, yeah, this one was a good one to cover anyways. And again, Emily, I had told about um, a cartwheel before and she's like, did you actually mean like in reference to a plane? And I said, yes, absolutely. I did. Yes, the the uh, go watch the video. It, Here's cartwheels. your cartwheel. Yep, the cartwheel accident. Okay, so, well, have a good week and uh, stay safe, stay healthy, be smart. Thanks for being on the podcast, yeah. Yeah, and like this is something that I said in my previous episode that I started. Like listening to you guys and talking about these accidents, I do feel safer like flying. Thank God, that's good. That that's the whole point. <laughs> this would not happen again. Yeah. Especially at San Francisco. I think everyone now is like, okay, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> and to be perfectly honest, it's very rare, as I talk about my Miranda Zode, to have a localizer approach without a glide slope. It's not normal. It's not normal. I'm and having sh- both of them out at the same time is probably really rare. But They said it was construction. I don't know. I think we've landed on this runway before. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we yes. have. Absolutely. See, we lived. Yeah, we're fine. We're so fine. you realize literally this runway is one of the two most active runways at San Francisco and they use it I mean like every 3 minutes. There at are least. literally millions of people land there every year on that runway. So you're you're perfectly safe. Yeah. This was truly bizarre, but especially considering this was a 777. seven is an incredibly safe airplane. Obviously. I mean it still is one of the only airplanes with a safety record that has no major mechanical caused hull loss. Yep. Okay. Have a good week. 
Keep your speed up! Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.